Good morning. Good morning again. Good to see everybody here. What a beautiful, bright, sunny morning we have uh, to worship. And uh, thank you for uh, sharing. Crystal, I think she may have gone back, uh, loves kids. And the fact, several of our kids, I think they had 12 or 14 kids that were uh, with, a, uh, with our staff, volunteer staff, and with Eric at the um, Superstart. Uh, that would be elementary. So uh, just a great, some cool things are happening with our kids. I'm excited about that. We want to make sure that we provide for them spiritually. Uh, but we're in a study uh, of the Sermon on the Mount for a few weeks. Actually, we finish that up next week, and uh, then we get into Easter, which is uh, exciting uh, to, to talk about as well. Uh, but we're going to be talking today about a, a single statement, one verse of Scripture is our focus this morning, and uh, we'll, we'll get into that in just a moment. You know, studies and surveys and uh, just the media tell us that we're living in a divided country. You've probably heard that, that we are divided. Never has been, there been a time we're more divided culturally, politically, racially perhaps, and socially. Uh, maybe you uh, heard recently a far-right politician suggested that it was time for a national divorce. If you've read that or not, but, but words like that are being tossed around. And there are issues that are out there that don't seem to have a way to be solved or to find reconciliation in those matters. And you ask the question, is there anything that can bring us all together? Is there anything, anything that we can agree on as a country, as a nation, as a people? And I would say, yes, there is. I think there's proof of that. 2,000 years ago, a man came from heaven and he came down to bring us uh, uh, information or knowledge of how to be reconciled to God, have peace with God. But he also, in the process, he gave us the ability to have reconciliation with one another too, to find peace with other human beings. Now, of course, that man was Jesus. And he came into a divided world at that time. Every, every season seems to think it's unique and different, but in reality, we all had the same problems. They've always existed in some shape or form. And Jesus' teachings were revolutionary at the time, and they continue to be revolutionary today. People still struggle to embrace what Jesus has taught, but there are some things that are commonly agreed upon. In fact, there was one statement that Jesus made that is almost universally affirmed. Almost everybody in the world agrees with this one statement. They claim it, they focus on it, and they can all agree. In 1993, there were 143 leaders who represented all of the world's religions. They all met together and they affirmed this statement as a universal truth. And in fact, they incorporated this statement into what they called the Declaration Toward a Global Ethic. Now, not a worn world religion, all right? So we're not going there, but, but there was an agreement. Everybody said, is there anything we can find common ground on? They found one statement that virtually everybody agreed with. And we're going to talk about that statement today. We find that statement in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus said, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This one statement found almost universal agreement. We call this the golden rule because it is the highest level or the best way to live life. The most universal rule of our life. But you know what, just because we agree on that, just because everybody says it's a great idea, doesn't mean that we actually follow that. Because like a lot of things we say we believe, we don't always do. If we did follow the golden rule, then there wouldn't be all the problems that we have today. There wouldn't be all the conflict in the world. There wouldn't be all the divisions that we have. Now calling it the golden rule 
kind of separates it from the other rules, the other rules of life, the, the rules of life that we really follow. Uh, we, we say this is the golden rule, but there are other rules too. Let me, let me share some rules that are basically at odds with the golden rule. Here's the first one. It's called the iron rule. The iron rule is, uh, means uh, do to others before they do to you. In other words, you can almost think what someone else might do, so you treat them that way first. And you rule with an iron hand, you take control, you take no prisoners. Many people live their life living by the iron rule. A second rule is the brass rule. Not sure why they call it the brass rule, but basically it's the get even rule. That if someone does something to you, then you do it back to them. Treat them exactly like they treat you. And then lastly, there's what's called the silver rule. And the silver rule sounds like the golden rule, but it's not. It's very similar, but it is found in almost every world religion, including religions like Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, the Code of Hammurabi, which existed before Jesus about 2,000 years. Even in Judaism, you find this rule in the Old Testament, basically, in Judaism. And basically, the rule is don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Now, that sounds pretty similar to the golden rule, doesn't it? But there's a subtle difference in that it's stated in the negative and just don't treat people bad. And the, the problem with that is that it doesn't have anything to do with being good or doing good, just don't be bad. And there's no encouragement in that to be good. And again, this rule is kind of stated in the Old Testament. The law kind of says just don't treat people badly. But Jesus said, I want you to think and focus on and be intentional on treating people well. In fact, the way you would like to be treated. And the golden rule is a commandment to actively do good to treat other people as you wish to be treated. And it covers about everything. And Jesus was the first one to introduce the concept to the world. But what does it mean really to keep the, fold, the golden rule? What does it mean in practice? How do we live that rule out? Well, you know, it ought to be pretty simple, and the sermon probably ought to be pretty short, because we all know how we'd like to be treated. We could just leave it there. We could say, treat people like you want to be treated. But the Bible, knowing that we don't always know how to live out the commands, the Bible expands on it, and it gives us an actual list of what is called, what we call the one another's. So the Bible gives us a, a lot of specific ways that we ought to treat people because we'd like to be treated that way as well. In fact, there are 59 different times in the New Testament alone where we're commanded to do something to or for one another. And these one another's actually flesh out the, the golden rule. In fact, there was a series of books written several years ago called the one another books. And each one of them focused on one of these 59 ways that we should treat and respond to one another. So let's take a moment, just look at, we won't look at all 59, uh, don't worry, but let's look at a few of those to kind of get a feel for what it might be like. For example, here's one, be devoted to one another, live in harmony with one another, be patient, bearing with one another in love, spur one another on toward love and good deeds, accept one another, stop passing judgment on one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Strengthen one another. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Offer hospitality to one another. And all of these hinge on Jesus' words where he says, love one another. So that's just a sprinkling, just a sample of some of the ways. If you look at that list there, 
it's very obvious that there's some intentionality and there's some ways that we want to be treated and that we should treat other people that way as well. And can you imagine what would happen if we actually lived like that? If we took the words of Jesus, the teachings, the principles of Jesus, and we actually did those things to one another, what a wonderful world it would be, right? How awesome it would be to live in that environment if we were devoted and kind and patient and accepting and compassionate and forgiving and loving to one another. So let's take a few minutes here and I'm gonna look at just two of those commandments. Not even two that I mentioned, two more. Obviously some fresh ones are gonna pull out. Some things that we need to do to treat one another in this way. And we're gonna begin with a very simple one that is uh, from Hebrews chapter three, encourage one another encourage one another. It's a great principle. It's a great teaching there. To encourage someone is to put courage into them. In courage is pretty simple, pretty basic, right? And to give them hope and confidence. And every one of us need that, don't we? Is there anyone that you know that doesn't need to be encouraged a little bit? Because life has a way of sucking all the joy and all the hope and all the happiness and all the gas out of our tanks. Life has a way of drawing from us, and we need people who will pour into us. Not only does the Bible tell us to encourage one another, and and, and gives us this platform of, uh, of the need as well as the ability, but it also gives us examples of that. And one of the examples of, of someone who did uh, encourage others uh, is it's found in the New Testament, the book of Acts, and they called him Mr. Encouragement. So he was such an encourager, they actually gave him that name. And we read about him in the book of Acts, which is about the early church. So let's just jump in Acts chapter four. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, there were those who owned lands or houses, sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So here's kind of the environment here. The church is new. Jesus has died. He's raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit's come, the church has begun, and there was so much excitement there. The church was brand new and fresh, enthusiasm was everywhere, but there were some challenges. There was persecution from the outside. There there was a true, uh, they were being imprisoned, they were being put to death, they were being hauled into court. Some of them, uh, the the leaders would be, have to force to explain what they were doing. And there was persecution from without the church, but from within the church, they were dealing with life. There was poverty, there were widows, there were orphans. Many of the people who became Christians, their families had abandoned them and just kind of left them and and there were needs and they didn't have a way to live or anywhere to, uh, any, any food or anything. Things were difficult there. And you can imagine those who were in charge were overwhelmed. In fact, this was a time that the the first deacons were called in to help meet the needs of, of the growing church. But there was a guy who came along named Joseph, and Joseph began to uh, understand this and see what was going on. And so he set the pace and set the tone for the entire community because he selflessly sold some land that he had, and he took that money and he gave it to the church. 
And his example became contagious and other people were prompted to give generously themselves. And so they had the resources and so they chose Joseph and they named him Barnabas the Encourager. Mr. Encourager. I don't know that I could remember what Barnabas' real name was. That's how he was so defined by encouragement that we kind of forget Joseph and we call him Barnabas going forward. So he became kind of a pace setter for the church. He encouraged everyone. You can almost see him walking through the crowd when they gathered together, just encouraging and building up, patting people on the back. And that's kind of what the encourager did. Later on, God called a man named Saul. And Saul had been a big part of the church's problems. He had been one of the persecutors. He had put people in prison, even killing Christians. Saul had been a very, he'd been the enemy of the church, but God had a mission for Saul. And so God called him, converted him to a follower of Christ. Now just imagine how Saul was viewed after that, because here's a guy that everybody's hated. Everybody knew that hated them. I guess they didn't hate him as followers, but they feared him. And suddenly this man comes and now he says he's a Christian and he wants to be a part of things and he wants to fit in and, and, and be a part of the church. You imagine the church was skeptical of him. They figured he was just trying to infiltrate the church and find out where the, who the leaders were and where people lived and, and everything like that. Saul was a true convert. We read about his conversion in the book of Acts. His old life was gone. He had truly changed, but he had no church family. He had no identity, no one to belong to. And people were very skeptical of him. So in Acts chapter 9, it says, When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. They were all still afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Here's Barnabas again. Barnabas comes alongside of Saul, later renamed Paul, more than likely you knew that, and he encouraged him, but he also used his own credibility to give Saul credibility, to help him be accepted and to help him be embraced into the body life of the church. And he built up the church through that, built up Saul, built up the church. And then later on, Paul came into his own. You know probably that Paul ended up eclipsing Barnabas Saul became a great missionary. He also wrote about half the New Testament. It was an apostle to the Gentiles. And all that happened because an encourager came alongside of Saul. What would have happened if no one had come up to support him? Would it be possible that Saul had been so discouraged he'd just fallen away? And we would have missed everything. But God had a plan. But Barnabas was a part of that. A few chapters later in the same book, in the book of Acts chapter 11, you see Barnabas again. A revival had started in a town called Antioch. Someone would stop in, they would preach, a church would begin, a revival started in Antioch. They didn't have a building, they didn't have an identity, they didn't have anyone to minister to them. And so it says that news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they, saw, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So when the, kind of the mother church in Jerusalem heard that revival had started, that there was new believers in Antioch, they sent Barnabas there. And Barnabas went there and he encouraged them 
to be faithful. And then Barnabas, what did he do? He went and got Saul or Paul at that point, and he brought him and they ministered together for a year. That was unusual. They didn't spend that much time uh, in, in most of the towns and most of the churches. But he spent a year there teaching and leading and investing in those people. And the impact of his ministry was amazing. It said great numbers of people were saved and grew spiritually, so much so that the disciples there were called Christians for the first time. The first mention of Christians were in the, the town of, of Antioch, the church in Antioch. And the name Christian basically means little Christ, an imitator of Christ. God did all of that, but God used Barnabas, who was willing to be an encourager. And he says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And because of that, many people came to know the Lord. You know what we need in the church? More Barnabases. We need more men and women who are encouragers and who, put, who allow the Holy Spirit to work in their lives and listen to the Spirit like Barnabas did and are willing to go and do what needs to be done. And today we're called Christians because of a man who used to be Joseph became Barnabas the encourager. That's the power of encouraging one another. Amen. You know, one of our values here at the church is sharing. Our three values are connecting, growing, and sharing. We feel like that's a natural flow in our, our spiritual life. And one of our values is sharing. And we're going to spend some time in the very near future talking about sharing. But right now, I want you to think about the power of encouraging one another. Because encouraging is one of the ways that we share Jesus with others. Let me ask you, who do you think, who can you think of right now that you could encourage? I mean, you might want to look around the room and just see somebody that looks like, man, they could use a little bit of encouragement today. Who can you think of that you could offer to, uh, to, to invest in them a little bit and just, you know, give them a call, a, a note, an email, or maybe help them get through a difficult time in their life? Who can you invest in and encourage? What kind of sacrifice would it take maybe not even a large sacrifice, just to give them some of your time. Just to say, hey, let's meet for lunch. Or, hey, let's spend a little time together. I just wanna, just wanna encourage you. Who needs a word of encouragement right now? If I were to ask that general question, some of you would probably say, I could probably use a word, you know? Who needs to hear that, you know what? You are a good father, or you're a good mother, or you're a really good son, or a good daughter. Who needs to know that somebody is watching them? Somebody notices their efforts. Sometimes, like Saul, we just need somebody to come alongside of us so we don't get discouraged and kind of lift us up. Who needs to hear what you would long to hear from others? Remember the golden rule, do to others what you want them to do to you? So if you need something, maybe that's how you think about giving it to others. And you know, the Bible says that in order to have a friend, you have to be a friend. I think that's the golden rule. And in practice, again, to show friendship and love to others when you're longing for that yourself. What if we lived in a world and a culture and a community of encouragement, support, that everybody was there for one another, doing to others what we would like to have done to ourselves? I think that's a beautiful way to see the golden rule. Let me tell you another one another to think about. And that is, it comes from Galatians chapter five, where it says, serve one another in love. So what do we do? We serve one another. You know, serving is one of the ways that we can be most like Christ. We are most like Christ whenever we're serving. In fact, 
One story in the ministry of Jesus illustrates this perfectly and kind of shows us the heart of service. It's found in, in John chapter 13. It says that Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. If you recognize that, you know that comes from the time that Jesus was with his disciples at the Last Supper. But a little bit of background, in that day, they didn't have paved roads. And, uh, and most of the roads were dirt, and if it was dry, there was dust, and if it was muddy and wet, there was mud. They had to walk through. They wore sandals in that day. They didn't have uh, uh, rubber boots to wear. They wore sandals that exposed their feet to the conditions of the dirt. And most of the people walked everywhere they went, and they shared the road with animals, donkeys, horses, sheep, goats, cattle. So think about that, what they were walking through whenever they would go somewhere. So even the best conditions, no matter where you were, your feet would get dirty if you traveled any distance. And so when they came together, many times they would share uh, in a gathering, in a meal that was kind of part of their uh, gathering as well. And they would not sit at a table. You know, we can stick our feet on the table. Uh, They didn't do that. They actually reclined at a table on cushions. And so their feet would be often up close and up personal. So think about just what this created here for an event and the need to have their feet washed. If you had guests in your home, the hospitable thing to do would be to have someone at the door with a basin of water. As the people came in, they would wash their feet, dry their feet, send them on to the meeting room. And it was the lowliest task for anyone. Nobody wanted to do it. You can imagine why, right? Just think about it. Nobody wanted to do something like that. And so the least favored slave or the lowliest slave got the job. If you didn't have a slave at the meeting, then some, the homeowner would do it themselves if they were hospitable until someone else came along of lower status and then they would be forced to take the job. That's kind of how it worked in that day. So at this gathering, nobody was volunteering to do that. Everybody was coming in, greeting one another, and it seems that it was totally forgotten. And so when Jesus came together with his disciples, he was, he was gathering. They arrived before him. None of them had the task. And when he walked in, there was no one to wash his feet either. And so, you know, they just kind of seemed to avoid it or ignore it. Nobody wanted that lowest position. It was a problem among the disciples. They quarreled about who would be the greatest, even in the kingdom of God. So Jesus walks into the room, an important meeting, traditional meal, the Passover, and they're all sitting down to eat and they all have dirty feet. And they were willing to do that. that Nobody wanted to, you know, to change anything. Nobody wanted to do it. They would eat that way rather than serve one another in a way that they deemed to be below them. So it seems that Jesus, when he came in, he actually sat down with them, giving another opportunity. Someone should have surely said, Jesus, you haven't had your feet washed and jumped up to do it. But no one moved. Notice it, it, it could have been an oversight. It was probably pretty obvious. It was a glaring omission. It somewhat, somewhat the elephant in the room that just hadn't happened. And so like our scripture said, Jesus got up from the table, took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist, a very undignified role for him, right? He took a basin of water. He began to wash the disciples' feet and drying them with the towel around his waist. I don't know about you, but I can imagine how small the disciples felt. And some of them protested. Peter protested that, uh, that he wasn't going to let Jesus do that. But he did, all right? 
It said, when he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You called me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and master, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So Jesus teaches us a lesson about humility and service and meeting one another's needs. You know, I grew up uh, in a Christian home. My grandfather went to a church that washed feet. I'll never forget that. I always thought that was so odd. It was obviously not a, a needed practice in our church. Uh, we did have cars and shoes whenever I grew up. Uh, so um, I always thought that was so weird And as a, as a kid. And today we know we don't have the same needs as they did. We've we got nice shoes. We've got cars to drive. We've got sidewalks and everything. But you know what? The need to serve is just as real. It's just as real. The needs are different, but the needs are there. Let me ask you, who could, who could you serve this week? Who could you serve? Who, who has a need of some sort? Who couldn't use a meal brought to their home? Who could use a little help with their yard? Maybe there's an elderly person that could use a visit. Do you see some of these things don't really cost you a dime? Service doesn't cost us anything financially. It just takes a little bit of effort and willingness. And I can think of one place right off the bat where you could make a huge difference, a huge impact, and that's with our journey kids. That we have kids in the back, and we want to always provide that for, for people to come in and worship so that their children are, are cared for and safe so that you, we can all sit out here and enjoy the worship service. But you know, sometimes we forget that it takes people back there. People like Crystal, who just broke away to come up here and tell us about a ministry she's doing, but... But she has a heart for that as a volunteer. And there are many others that do that, but they are always a great need. It's always a need to do that. And maybe being able to worship an hour and then going back and, and just working an hour and serving with those kids are so impressionable. I think that serving is modern day feet washing. It's needed. It's respecting and honoring people who have needs. And I really think that's probably what Jesus would be doing if he were here. Because it's a golden rule in practice. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. You know, Jesus personified that, that principle. All of his life was about service. And down through time, others have followed his example as well. And we read about stories in the book of Acts and in church history of serving people who served the Lord. But you know what? He, even beyond the church into the secular world, there, there are other ways that people serve. And several generations of children saw this model through the life of a man named Fred Rogers. Remember Mr. Rogers, the TV show? A lot of us remember in our childhood, and our kids love Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers was genuinely a good man, and on top of that, he was a Christian, and he was an ordained minister, but he made children's television his ministry. And what was interesting is 1997, the Emmy Awards honored him with the Lifetime Achievement Award. And at the presentation, he was called up, he did something that took everybody surprise, by surprise. Instead of soaking in the accolades, if you knew him or saw him, he was a very humble man. He took the honor given to him and he turned it around into a moment of honoring others. 
so powerful. In fact, I want to take a few moments and look at that footage of that real quick of that moment in 97, Mr. Rogers. It is my honor on behalf of everyone here and on behalf of the millions of children whose mornings you have brightened with your kindness to present you with this Lifetime Achievement Award. Oh, it's a beautiful night in this neighborhood. <laughs> so many people have helped me to come to this night. Some of you are here, some are far away, some are even in heaven. All of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Would you just take, along with me, 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are. Those who have cared about you and wanted what was best for you in life. 10 seconds of silence. I'll watch the time. Whomever you've been thinking about, how pleased they must be to know the difference you feel they've made. You know, they're the kind of people television does well to offer our world. May God be with you. Thank you very much. If you were to take 10 seconds to think about the people in your life that have made you who you are and helped you grow and develop, would you be able to do that? And have you ever done that, to thank those people? And if those people are still alive, why not give them a little bit of recognition, a moment. And while you're doing that, think about perhaps the people who, if they were given 10 seconds of time, would think of you. Who would think of you as the one who is impacting their lives? Who are you encouraging? Who are you serving? Who are you honoring? The scripture is, do to others what you would have them do to you. And you know, that reminds me of another saying of Jesus where he says, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for a friend. Few of us will ever be called to do that, to honor or serve someone in that way, but Jesus was. And that's what Jesus did for us. And this morning, the call he gives is to come to him and find rest in him and find hope and find eternity in him. And that is our call as well. If you're here and you've never given your life to Christ and you want to make that decision, I'm going to be up front. Tony will be here. George is going to step up. We're available for prayer, even if it's not a decision for Christ. Maybe it's just you just need someone to pray with you. You know, sometimes we, people don't know what our needs are until we tell them. And I will say that when you share that with us, we are honored to bear your burden with you and to pray with you and serve you in that way. So we invite you to do that. Or if you just want to come up and spend some time in prayer alone, please do that. Again, we are in challenging you to think about your relationship with the Lord. Um, we are going to be having a class following this. And Tony will give you more information about that briefly. But about uh, following the second service about baptism and the beautiful way of coming into Christ that baptism pictures. And so I want you to think about that and, and, and pray about that so that you're right with him. Because there's no one who has done more for you to encourage you or serve you than Jesus. And he invites you to come to him today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your day, this day. We thank you for your word. God, we're so grateful that Jesus left his home 
in heaven to come down here and live with us, to serve us, to teach us, to encourage us, Lord. To, to do everything that the one another's tell us that we should do for others, Jesus modeled. So Lord, help us as we try to be Christians, little Christ, imitating our Lord and our Savior. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.